This episode of Future Construct is supported by Applied Software. We would like to thank them so much for supporting us. Uh, Applied Software is really on a mission to transform industries. They empower their clients and champion innovation with real world expert consultants. So to reach them, you go to asti.com, that's A-S-T-I.com, and please tell them that we at Future Construct and BIM Designs sent you. Thanks so much. Hi, welcome to the Future Construct podcast. I'm your host, Amy Peck. Today, we have Chris Howard, who is the founder and CEO at SoftTech. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Amy. Glad to be here. So Chris, you have a, a long, diverse background. I, I'd love for you to maybe start by just talking a little bit about how you came to start SoftTech. It's a, a long, circuitous journey, I'm sure. Yeah, we started our 25th year here recently, and um, it is a long story, but I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, you know, I've always, I, I say I never had a real job. Um, I started uh, uh uh, as an entrepreneur about 35 years ago, I, I think the closest that I had to a real job was a co-op at IBM down at NASA during the uh, space shuttle days. And there was a couple of years there where I actually got really exposed to computers. The department had one of the first IBM PCs down there. They didn't know what to do with it. And they, uh, I soon talked my, my department manager into putting the department's uh, PC on my desk. You know, so and I learned back then that the expert was the guy who actually read the manual, right? So um, I, I left there after a couple of years, still in college, started a company. This is when you know things were taken off, and even back then, it's interesting. Like these, this is like the 1980s, right? It felt like I'd kind of missed a lot of it because Byte Magazine was already like 200 pages, and Microsoft was already started, and you're like wow, I kind of missed the way. I wish I had gotten in on this early, but you never realize how early you are on, on some things. But uh, anyway, ran a toolkit company for 10 years, grew that to one of the, the, the largest graphics toolkit companies in the DOS days. And then um, once Windows kind of got that right, uh, Microsoft got Windows right with Windows 95, I, I pivoted the business into um, soft tech and just you know restarted as a software services business that's focused on technical software development. And by that, I mean, complex software development and hardware development, um, where, you know, not the easy stuff like, hey, write my recipe app, but, you know, just innovative projects like creating the first hybrid PC TV uh, product for Compaq and, and, and projects like that. So I just saw a need for kind of a higher level of, of expertise in technical development. Well, and aside from something that got me, because as I was looking through your profile, I saw that you were proficient in 10 languages and I said to myself, how are there even 10 languages for him to, to learn? And then of course I saw, you know, Python and C sharp. So it was very clever. But the other thing I noted, which I'm always impressed by is that you mentioned uh, twice actually in, in your LinkedIn profile that you're a family man, you're married to your uh, college sweetheart and your grandpa. I love that personal piece. And it would be great to just talk about you know, how your family has supported you through this time and, and uh, you know, just a little bit of a peek into Chris Howard at home. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, family is very important to me. Uh, you know, I have five children. I have three grandkids. Uh, my kids are all in their 30s now. So we got married pretty young. 
sometimes I think I had to start a business in order to support five children, <laughs> right? So uh, maybe they put me on the entrepreneurial path. I mean, my, my in-laws definitely thought I was crazy to quit a co-op job at IBM with uh, two kids and one on the way. Right. You know, and so for many years, I ran the business out of the house. Um, uh, and, and there were times in, in even the, the history of soft tech where I was not really trying to grow the company too fast because I was running the business in the house. I actually put a T1 line into, into my home back in the days. Right. If, when when people were using AOL dial up and things like that. And so uh, I thought, well, why pay brick and mortar rent? This is my rent. And it was like twenty five hundred dollars for this one point five megabit dedicated line. But, you know, what it did was it allowed me to be at home. I had several rooms in my house uh, dedicated to the office, but I could come out, spend time with the kids, go back in and work, come back out, do dinner and bath time and do other activities and all this flexibility. And the, uh, the interesting thing now is back then there was a stigma about working from home, right? So I spent a lot of time trying not to talk about the fact that Hey Disney, I'm I'm actually just you know a guy in my house. You know I'm working from home, and you've got this you know multi-million dollar deal on the table, right? Now everyone's working from home, and they're like, hey, this is great. So when people ask me, well, how has work changed for you? It's like, well, not at all, really. I mean, I'm this is feels very natural to me to be at home with family and managing that work-life balance, and but taking advantages of it, right? I mean, there's definitely cons but the pros are hey i can step out have lunch see the kids come back in you know it's uh, uh really a, a very nice and flexible way to work and i'm i'm happy now you know everyone's kind of on board right it's finally kind of breaking that wall <laughs> yeah you're seeing you were way ahead of the curve there with working from home. <laughs> yeah. I think that's great so I think, I think it's true as a parent you know you you weigh you know, having to get up and leave the house every day and you come back late at night and you're tired. And yeah, so I think that that, uh, I think you, you built yourself the best of all worlds there. Yeah, absolutely. Did a really interesting talk on, um, you know, why, why IOT deployments fail. And I think that's really important to talk about because I think that there are so many pieces on in this, in this sort of greater infrastructure um, that, that people miss. So I'd love to, to, you know, maybe if you can share some, some points on that. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, IOT of course is like a, a, a perfect, uh, domain for, for soft tech because it involves all the pieces of our, you know, full stack development. Right. So, uh, as a company, you know, we're not just an outsourcing company. We're, we're a company that can take an idea and make it reality. Right. I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche, but I mean, we actually can, can actually do it and deliver it. And that's because uh, we've always worked closely with hardware companies, but now we actually even can develop hardware, board layout, firmware, mechanical design, mobile app development, you know, a web backend, right? And then the AI and ML and, and data analytics that go on after that, right? And so, you know, when you look at an IoT project, it touches all of those things. And then that's, that's also why, you know, failure is, is, is higher than, than just say creating a mobile app, because you have a lot of pieces, a lot of parts, and they all have to be integrated. A lot of companies take an approach where uh, they try to hire different partners for di all those different pieces. And then they have to project manage that whole thing, get it all put together, 
and then then deliver it right uh so it's just a challenge from the beginning but you know uh you know from a technical standpoint complexity standpoint but then you know once the product is to, to develop there are other challenges right you know how do you scale this product how do you, uh, you know, what, what's the strategy behind it? Why did you need this thing? And is it something the customer actually wants? So you have that customer uh, uh, side of it that they might not have thought through. And then there's also the stakeholder side, right? They might get the product developed, but they haven't really built the, the, the you know, gotten the, the business on board on, you know, what, what are we doing with this? What are we going to, you know, uh, what was, what was success look like, right? So there's a lot of, you know, both the technical aspects of it and then the business aspects of it that, that people really need to think about and address. And so, um, I think that, you know, obviously 75% of the projects don't fail at soft tech, but, uh, uh, that overall, that's the challenge of, of the IoT space. So with our company, because a lot of that is under one roof and we've done it you know, many, many times, then the risk, is, uh, the risk of failure is reduced and we can participate as a thought leader and kind of educate them on those potential pitfalls and make sure that they're thinking about those ahead of time. So when the project gets done, you know, the customer is successful with it. You've got the inter- interoperability built in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they might not be thinking about, you know, all of those kinds of issues or the QA issues or uh, the fact that, <clears throat> you know, how do we how do we update this product in the field? Do you have a way to update the firmware once it ships? You know, how would you how would you fix devices out there in the field that, you know, maybe have a bug? Right. And now you can't just, you know, send a software update. You have to have a way to 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 update them either automatically without having the customer send them back. I mean, there's a lot of those things that you just need to think through. I would like to thank the team at Applied Software for supporting this episode of the Future Construct podcast. With solutions for really any modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering their clients and being the champions of innovation with real world expert consultants. They have a comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing with a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. So with software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered for all of your workflow needs. And BIM Designs is proud to be a client and partner of Applied Software. So you can reach them at asti.com, it's asti.com. And please let them know that we here at Future Construct and BIM Designs sent you. You mentioned another piece, which I think is is also, you know, often overlooked, which is, you know, how you're selling these types of projects upstream, because there's a there's an inherent complexity to the work that you do. And, you know, like you say, you're, you're doing the work that's, that's hard, right? You're, you're doing the projects that are really difficult and solving big problems. And, and so are you finding that it's typically sort of coming out of one particular area who has a need and maybe it's R and D, maybe it's IT, maybe it's a completely different department, but then how are they able to actually get budget and, and sell these types of projects upstream? Cause that can really be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, our, uh, kind of our, our customers come from kind of two like ends of, uh, I think the, the, the businesses, right. So we have, innovative startups that are actually trying to do something new and disruptive, right? And that's a different 
challenge and a different set of people. And then we have what we call the intrapreneurs. You know, those are the entrepreneurs. The intrapreneurs are the guys at like Fortune 500 companies, and they're trying to disrupt from inside before they get disrupted, right? And um, each each one has different different challenges. And as far as selling upstream, one approach that we're taking now is we have uh, we just we just announced and opened an innovation lab here in Houston, and we're we're helping. Um, both of these entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs kind of understand and brainstorm and innovate around, well, what, what, what is possible with technology today and how could it be applied to my business? And then helping them create something in, in a cohort class that would be either a design document or a proof of concept or an MVP that then they can show to uh, their upper management to get them excited about funding the project and then doing the, the, the bigger development effort where you're going to go mass market. And I saw very early in my consulting career that, you know, people, people don't, you know, it's hard for them to visualize software that you can't see those bits, right? You know, you can't hold them in your hands. But, you know, uh, if I, if I actually created like a demo for a customer, they totally got it. Oh, that's, I said, imagine for a second that we're actually done. This is what it would look like, right? Here's kind of the UI. This is the stuff that's going to be happening. You know, does this look like, you know, it would, would actually, you know, solve your problem? Is it something that you can market? And, you know, that, that was much more powerful than just waving your hands and talking about it, right? And, and trying to convince your boss that this is going to be the next, next best thing, right? So that's, that's one approach that we're taking now is kind of helping them ideate, innovate, and get that, you know, earlier in the process so that then they can kind of sell it upstream. That makes sense. And you do a lot of, um, you know, just kind of giving back and you're a mentor. And can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you do mentoring, whether it's with code.org or other organizations? Yeah, I think that um, it's one piece that I wanted to expand more and more in, in what I do. I mean, uh, the code.org and mentoring and, and, and those sessions uh, at, at the schools where you can talk to, you know, um, the kids at, at, very, at many different levels. Sometimes it's elementary school, sometimes it's high school about, you know, uh, what I've done in my career and what's possible and what they can do and kind of open up their minds and, 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 and uh, get them excited about technology. Um, I think that's another aspect of the innovation lab that I'm excited about because, uh, being an entrepreneur in Houston since the 80s, um, it, it really was uh, disappointing and shocking to me, actually, that the, the lack of uh, community and support here for the tech community versus, say, in, in, in San Jose and Silicon Valley and, and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of tech in Texas. There's a lot of things that have been developed and, and have come from here, you know, from the space program to healthcare, of course, oil and gas, there's a ton of tech in it. But even, you know, consider Considering like Texas Instruments was founded here, Compaq is here, Dell's based in Austin. There's a you know, between Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston. There's just a lot of technology, but there wasn't this ecosystem. So with the Innovation Lab, we're actually contributing and giving back to the local community, where we're able to help local Texas founders uh, get their ideas, you know, off the ground and developed. You know, to me, it's like it, it makes perfect sense for a startup, for example, to leverage a company like Softech, just like Intel and Verizon and Epson and these other guys are going out to us to develop their products. We can do that same kind of world class development for a startup and they don't have to cobble together a team in order to do it. Um, and then the classes in the in the innovation lab, um, I think, are, you know, they're educational as well. And we're looking at uh, offering a, a couple of seats per class 
to uh, those that you know maybe it's not accessible to, or for you know diversity and other reasons, you know that they uh, they can attend these these cohorts alongside you know other people, entrepreneurs, and also like I said, other customers, other other engineers, uh, and and actually learn learn and grow. So that's another way that we're you know mentoring and, and giving back. And so it, it seems that in the last few years, Houston really has hit their stride. There's a lot of stuff going on here. There's like 30 software uh, startup development organizations uh, uh, present here and big companies are moving in. I think, I think you mentioned that it was the Texas, right? You know, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Moving, I'm one of them. You're one of them. Yeah. Yeah. You're moving <laughs> yeah. to Austin or something. So um, uh, anyway, it's uh, I think that we're starting to see that swing. HP is now moving back, you know, even after acquiring Compaq, I just watched the compact campus dwindle down to nothing, right? And I think they've sold the whole thing off. But now they've built new campuses and, and HP is moving this direction. It took them like 10 years to figure that out. But, uh, you know, now they're coming. Tesla's coming. A lot of businesses are here. And there's this groundswell. The government's involved. Venture capital is is, is not just putting money in a hole in the ground, right? They're, they're saying, oh, well, we can actually invest in these tech companies and, uh and make money doing it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. Um, just around you know how municipalities uh, can can really you know sort of breed this innovation ecosystem, and it's not magic. Right, you just have to have resources, and you have to just build the community around it. You know, much like much like the infrastructure for some of your your products. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. Government support, I think, has been very key. The, the mayor of Houston is, um, you know, leading the charge. Uh, there is, uh, you know, Rice University uh, is behind the effort with, with the ION. There's the Canon. It's another uh, group right, right down the street from us that's, um, you know, incubating these companies and helping these startups mass challenges here. So there's just a lot of, a lot of activity. And, and actually, I've talked to several, um, for the first time, I've been in business, what, 35 years, but Never thought about talking to, uh, you know, con I talked to a congresswoman, I talked to a councilwoman, I talked to, you know, several people in government about what they're trying to do, uh, you know, for the city, whether it's public safety and other, other areas. Uh, and I it hadn't even really occurred to me to, to actually talk to a, a, a member of Congress, like for our district. Uh, so that they understand what we're trying to do here. But, you know, it makes perfect sense now. Like, well, why didn't I think about that? But um, it, it, it does take that whole ecosystem between government and, and, and the private sector to kind of band together and decide, hey, this is what we really want to do. So in, when you're looking at the landscape of all of this emerging technology that's sort of coming fast and furious and, you know, XR and blockchain and AI, robotics, you know, are there areas that you're seeing in, in your business that, you know, you're getting a lot of questions about or mm -hmm. that, you know, companies are really focusing on? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing right now, of course, is the AI and ML component. I mean, people are really seeing what AI and ML can do uh, with the data. Uh, what's happened is they've they've done things like developed a product that maybe collects a lot of data, video data, uh, other, other kinds of data, and then they don't know what, what, what they're going to do with it. Right. And, and they really need that AI and ML to, to be able to, you know, discover and analyze, you know, and, and target, right. Like say you've got a, a, a drone and you're doing, you know, maybe 
you know, oil, oil line, uh, or gas line inspections. And, you know, you don't have the time to sit there and look through the whole thing, but you want, you want an AI to go through and kind of identify either potential areas of the pipelines leaking, or there's some other, you know, what, why is this, why is this truck parked over here by the gas line? What are they doing? You know, stuff like that. Uh, so I think AI and ML are the, are the biggest things and, and the most say near term and accessible right uh for for really for, for really everyone and if you're not thinking about how to apply ai to your own business you know you're, you're probably a little behind the curve uh, there yeah yeah and there's you know and you know we talk about big data but it's not big data anymore i mean it's massive data and especially as we start to get these wearables and mm-hmm. it's this two-way pipe of, of leaving data and, and then consuming data uh, you know it's, it's sort of the wild west out there right now Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no one really cares. I mean, it is a challenge to develop something like, oh, you know, the Fitbit, you know, the hardware, getting it small enough, the battery, there's a lot of technical challenges here. But no one really cares about this so much as what can I see and do and analyze on, on the app, which is then tied to the back end, which then has an AI ML component and gives you all that information based on you know, you know, your, your sleep history and your fitness history and, and, and all that. I think there's just going to be continuing to be those kinds of things happening, not just like heartbeat detection and, and, and uh, irregularities. I mean, there's going to be more and more analysis. You just, you can be so much, you know, in the health space, right? You're just so much more aware of what's going on with yourself or you can be right. And I, I think I've got like five years of history in like all different kinds of categories from, you know, weight, to blood pressure, to fitness, to steps, you know, and stuff that, that, you know, uh, uh, could still probably be used and applied, you know, once they get those algorithms online, kind of like historically say, hey, maybe there's something here you want to look at, or maybe you might want to do something different, you know, in, in your life. That's an interesting thread because, it, you know, traditionally, I think, you know, consumers are sort of like, la, 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 when it comes to, to high tech, but we, you know, we're saying the same thing, you know, we've got our, our wearables, we're tracking our health. How do you see that? you know, evolution of, of us as consumers, as individuals starting to take more control over our data. Mm-hmm. And do, do you see that there's an opportunity now for us to maybe, you know, build this kind of interface where even if it's even beyond sort of just medical history, financial mm-hmm. history, you know, all, all manner of data about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's tricky, right? Because, you know, you would like to just have your own data, own your own data and not share it with anyone. But then on the other hand, all these companies are now aggregating everyone's data and there is some power in kind of sensing the patterns and understandings between one person and another person. And so it's a balance. Um, I don't really have an answer for it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be something we're going to have to address and who owns your data, right? You know, and, and whether it's DNA sites or fitness trackers or Google and Facebook, I mean, it's, um, it's something that we've kind of allowed, you know, to happen like unfettered, right? You know, everyone just, hey, share it. I don't care, you know, so and we're just kind of trusting those guys right now to be, you know, um, good custodians of our data. And unfortunately, they're not always good custodians. Yeah, yeah, definitely the genie is out of the bottle there. (laughs) Our data is out there. Right. (laughs) 
So I'd love to, to shift gears. And I ask this question of everyone to, to wrap up. Uh, and, you know, you're, you obviously spent a lot of time thinking about the future, future tech, mm-hmm. got grandkids. So if you could sort of project yourself into, you know, 2030, 2040, 2050 and beyond, and you could create, you know, the gadget or just sort of this lifestyle of, of your personal future, mm-hmm. what, what would it be and what would it do? Well, I've always told my production guys that I wanted to work on two things. One, one was a time machine. And from the standpoint of not going back in time, but just giving me more time in the day because uh, it seems like I don't have enough hours in the day or the night to do everything that I wanted to do. So I don't know if it's time compression or whatever, but, uh, and the other one is, you know, of course the tele, you know, the transporter teleportation thing, but those probably aren't really achievable in the next uh, 20, 30 years. I'd say what I'd like to see uh, and something I'm trying to focus on um, more this year in Houston is I'm trying to identify startups that are working on age tech, you know, so I think there's a big gap in technology and technology supporting the elderly. So if I think about 30 years from now, I'll be what 87 or something like that. And, uh, you know, there's, I, I hope that I'm still able to, you know, turn on the, the holographic TV and, and, and get my clock from stop blinking or whatever the, the, the thing is back you know, in the future. But even now, I've been frustrated by just, you know, supporting, you know, either my parents or grandparents with technology and, and, and making it accessible and maintainable uh, for them. And we're, we're definitely, you know, nowhere near that yet. Right. And so I would like to try to, you know, work on those types of products and, and kind of help build that, that future so that, you know, when I get there, um, you know, I, uh, I'm able to use it and, and, and people that aren't, as, I mean, as technical as, as we are, you know, I, I don't know how I, I imagine the frustration and how difficult it is for someone that's not in this industry to actually interact with these technical products that we develop. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's why we're all like the IT persons for our family, because they're like, how does this stuff even work? You know, and how do I get my Apple TV working again or whatever? Of course, the secret is, you know, did you turn it on and off again? That's pretty much 90 percent of what you have to know. <laughs> that's but, all good. That, but even that, you know, even that, like, well, did you restart it just like before even calling me? Right. Just like step one, because that's what I'm going to do. But I can't do that from here. Right. I have to go to the house and actually click the buttons for them or whatever. I want to be able to maintain it and and do it and 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 and, you know, like remotely, like with my grandmother or whatever, if they're located in Wisconsin or Minnesota. Right. Um, so even using an iPod, try to describe to an older person how to use an iPod. Right. And you start listing out the steps and you're like, wait, this is supposed to be an easy to use device. This is Apple or their UI and everything, right? <clears throat> it's actually freaking hard, you know? And once you list it out, yeah, how do you change your playlist? You know, I mean, it's, oh, it's only 12 steps, you know, and then no problem, just spin the wheel and click, 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 but it's too much for them. So I would really like to see uh, some improvement in how we, you know, target, you know, elderly and then also less skilled people with, with the technology. It doesn't have to have a gazillion features, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. I've seen, you know, the the Wi-Fi names. It's one of them uh, in a building near me said, it's this one, mom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I thought that was really good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you you know, why can't I, you know, why can't you, why can't you just 
you know, plug a Wi-Fi router in and kind of have it more or less start working or at least be managed remotely. You know, that would be like a challenge. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Like, what's well, it's got to get on the internet, but then now you want to try to maintain it. And, uh, you know, just those challenges of like, you know, your, your parents helping out and, and deciding, hey, what if I push and hold this button on the back? You know, I think that'll fix it. Like, no, you just reset it to factory settings and <laughs> made my job a lot harder, right? You know, don't do that. Unplug it and plug it back in again. That's all you need to do. <laughs> okay, well, I thought, I just thought of a, a new product. It will be the M MDM, which will be mobile mom and dad device management. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Let's work on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we're making use of from putting in Nest for thermostats and ring doorbells and, and Amazon Echoes and all that. So, you know, and, and giving them a phone and now they can manage their whole house. And it's just, there's, a, there's a lot of powerful stuff, but it's, it's, it's still too hard, you know. Well, I look, I look forward to those products because I'm going to need them as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us today. It was a, a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, definitely, Amy. I enjoyed it. Uh, you have a good, uh, good weekend. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.